You're listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. In 1994, South Africans were liberated from the vicious, racially segregated, social, and political system of apartheid. South Africa's liberation from apartheid was considered one of the most triumphant successes on the continent in recent history. Celebrated chef, TV personality, and cookbook author Zola Nene remembers her childhood fondly. Her days were spent watching her mom make fantastic meals at home after school. And she didn't know anything about what was going on in the world around her that was completely excluding her racially and otherwise. I have three names. So my full names are Zola Figile Sinintlantra Nene. So Zola, my name, Figile has arrived. Sinintlantra, we are fortunate. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's actually a little bit, uh, what's it? Presentient, right? Because right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you can't actually sit around slouching doing nothing with that name. No, nope. my parents were, were happy that I arrived, so I better do something. So my parents lived in the thick of apartheid. And yet somehow they manage it. I get, I get really emotional talking about it, actually. I don't, I don't know why it like, triggers me. Um, but somehow they managed to shelter us in a way where we didn't harbor any resentment or hate towards anybody. So my, you know, my dad and, and his family experienced a lot, a lot of um, hardship. And my dad said that early on he made a choice to not be a statistic and all he wanted to do ever was make his mom proud. So he knew he was going to be more than people told him he was going to be. Um, so growing up in, in Durban, obviously there was segregation, all of that stuff. But for some reason, as young kids, my parents never exposed us to that. Like to a certain extent, we were very, very sheltered. Let's just take a few steps back. Before 1994, her family, her parents, no one who looked like her could ever dream that she'd be a celebrated chef, author of cookbooks, TV personality. How could it be? I'm very aware now because my, my, I mean, my dad would tell my, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother was a domestic. My dad would go to the madam's house where my mom worked during the, during the week, during school holidays. He'd go there. And my dad would do gardening to help my mom. He'd wash clothes. He'd do all of the stuff just to sort of help his mom and also spend time with his mom. And it's just like, for me, that's such a... I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to see my mom every single day. She got to to make me dinner every single day. And I thought that that was the norm. And that wasn't the norm for most black people. And the realization of that is just like, 
incredible. That's why, like, there is no choice but for me to be successful in whatever I do. I just, I love everything I do because I truly get to live my passion out loud and um, people receive it, which is really amazing. So writing cookbooks and sharing my, my recipes and books is obviously an amazing thing because that's a forever project and long after I'm gone, that will still exist. So I love that sort of feeling about it. Um, love my TV stuff because I think that, you know, when you're on television, you're exposed to a such a large number of people. Um, and also it gives you some sort of legitimacy because I think that you, when people see somebody on TV, they're like, oh, they must be good at what they do. Well, there could be no argument about that. After successfully completing culinary arts school, where she studied for three years and got a chef's qualification, traveling and working in kitchens in the UK, and then back at home in South Africa, where she's appeared on numerous television shows, written several books, and has an Instagram following to die for, there's no doubt about it. Zola is good at what she does. I go out and eat for a living. You know, it's part of my, my job. And I sit in a restaurant and I do look around and I look to see, you know, is there anyone else that looks like me besides the people who are sitting at this table, with, you know, around me? So do you think that the growth in self-expression of people such as yourself, you can write a book mm-hmm. and share your stories and your recipes and your love and passion through the food. Then we can see you on the television and mm-hmm. do the same and you're sitting in the vineyard at a particular place, Mm. and then I see your Instagram feed, shouldn't that make me feel like, okay, well, if Zola can do it, I can also. Well, I I like to think that that helps other black females sort of see somebody that looks like them doing something they potentially would like to do, and that's like an encouraging thing. I'd love to think that that's the reality of things, but sometimes I wonder, hey, some some of the, the harshest commentary I get is from fellow black females who who often criticize me of not being black enough it's it's something that i really do struggle with because i only know how to be one way and that's black there are many ways to be black what does that mean somehow someone somewhere has decided what blackness is i I wish i could find that somebody so they could explain it to me (laughs) the memo fell off the table (laughs) yeah So if there is not a prescription of blackness, Mm. just the same as there is no prescription of femaleness. Mm. I wish I understood it. I wish I understood it so that it wouldn't hurt so much. Well, neither of us could figure it out. What is being black anyway in a new South African context? So I decided to talk to Zayon Khan, a colored South African, and see what she had to say about the same. Zayon. Mm-hmm. Zayon like crayon. <laughs> Zayon like crayon. Huh. Okay, so that's a good point of departure for your creativity. <laughs> well, you know, I I was a very, very creative child. Um, and it was always something that was one of the things that I excelled at. And so it, it's, it's allowed to kind of trickle down to other spaces for stories, you know, to be told and to be held and to be kind of immortalized if it, if it needs to be um, and so art is such a is a medium that speaks to everyone there's no kind of uh, there's a lot less segregation in the way that we work when we use art 
Food and social justice activist Seon Khan was just a child in 1994, but she can remember how the explosion in political and social self-expression going on in the country then fueled her creative interests. Let me first describe. So it, it, it helps to be somewhat obsessed <laughs> with the concept and concepts of time um, and how uh, kind of identity nestles so, so wonderfully into that because a lot of this work, when we talk about anthropocentrism or how the ego and the self is so much at the center of everything that exists, which we know is nonsense. I'm focusing at the moment on food through the lens of art and talking about the kind of injustices through art. And that may mean, you know, talking about identity and slavery um, in the Cape through art. It can be talking about the kind of eco side that happens in the oceans and how traditional fishes and coastal peoples are um, kind of most marginalized um, to the fact that, you know, insects are food or whatever the case is. So there's, there's a lot of different ways it manifests. It can be physical art. It can be a workshop, a storytelling. Um, I can use different tools like ceramic. And, and a lot of the food that I transform as well becomes a very important tool in this uh, storytelling because, you know, it builds through time. So it's preservation techniques mostly. But then you eat it in the end. And so that becomes something embodied. And so the whole storytelling process um, kind of culminates into the synesthetic experience of you smelling the food, eating the food, you know, touching the food, all that kind of thing. Issues of food, race and the cultural continuum that we call indigenous in South Africa have been on Zeon's mind for quite a while. So much so that she started to consider looking at food and its cultural context through a lens that she calls ancient futures. Okay, there is a reason why I was born in this body. Um, So I identify as female. And in this space, in this family, we are what you would, or South African apartheid law would have traditionally called Cape Malay being Muslim in Cape Town, in South Africa, et cetera, et cetera, at this time. And because my whole life had led me to believe that I that everything happened for a reason, I had to just succumb to that and be, be happy and grateful for that because I'd had a lot of battles in my life with identity. It became very clear that what I was doing was on the right track. I just had to change the way I was working and specifically the people I was working with. And this is where this concept of ancient futures came from. Where is the crux of the work? And then I would say it's really around indigenous food. So what is my identity and my, my right to work with indigenous food? Where I come from, a lot of my dear friends and a lot of the people who are working in indigenous food are white people. Yeah. And how does that not affect their identity? How do they not feel any guilt or et cetera, et cetera? Um, and of course, whiteness is its own, its own thing. Um, but I had to do some, some A, um, like excavation of who I am and B, really reassess what, like what it is and why it is I wanted to do the work. Um, and it was clear that the work is needing to be done and the calm and the settled feeling that I came to was when I realized that I can claim a sense of indigeneity to this land because of 
my heritage. And so being Cape Malay slash Cape Colored, the the pool is very mixed <laughs> from all different kinds of areas. And as is the nature of most people who are mixed, who are born and bred in South Africa in this identity crisis thing, um, and really laying foundation on how important my people were also in creating a culinary landscape and tradition within South Africa. The more I listened, it became apparent to me this identity and color consciousness in a new democratic South African context tends to put people quite on a spectrum around their own self-identity. And the irony of that didn't escape me, Zola, nor Zayon as it relates to food. It's crazy because, okay, so, so then define what, what, where on the spectrum do I lie? And Zola took us right to the center of the issue. Because I ate cornflakes that my mom gave me growing up. I ate ipalishi, which is maize meal porridge that my mom, you know, made. I ate isinkwasombila, mini bread that my grandmother steamed. I also ate white bread. I also ate brown bread. I also ate whole wheat bread. So where does it put me in the spectrum then? There's a lot of yellow in there. So <laughs> I would say you're, you're, what would they call you, a banana? <laughs> Don't call me a banana. I hate bananas. <laughs> so, it, I mean, that, yeah, so, sort of defining race based on food is also quite a, quite a strange concept because I, I think that your cultural upbringing or your cultural reference, for me anyway, because I can't speak for all Zulu people. I can't speak for all black people. I'm talking about my own personal culture. And I think that culture is a very personal experience. Zayon Khan had this to say about race and the future. I think it's, it's, it's quite complex, obviously. But on a very simplistic level, it's around identity again. Because the people who are cooking those foods, those are the people and preparing those foods, those are the people and I'm using quotation marks, to whom that food belongs. And I have, I mean, in our family alone, we have so many stories that I can share about, about the food in itself and how being forcibly removed changed the food culture. And so people were segregated from their food and thus people began to be very like closed and guarded. Um, and for me, that closeness and guardedness is something that I've been forced to do in my own work and with a lot of the work that I've been doing over the years, I've realized in my own hypothesis, so not trying to center myself in this, but just to say from my experience, what I've learned is that um, knowledge is something that's not only held within people, but knowledge is something that's held within the land. And with very humble and gracious um, intrigue and curiosity, so just to kind of be a vessel for it, if you know what I mean. So there again, for me, is the beauty in using food as a lens to look at race and the world around us. Because when we have a conversation about what is indigenous, what is traditional, and then how do we impact this new phase of humanity called the Anthropocene? If it's endemic, indigenous to the African continent, it tells the same story, no matter what we look like. And when we remove this racist notion mm -hmm. from that, then we're all kind of liberated to eat as much as we want. And what we want, how we want to, because that for me is authenticity. Um, I, 
you know, the worst thing that, that, that I think could happen to me in my career is to, you know, start taking to heart when people do say I'm not black enough and then start making things that I don't identify with. So, for example, it would be it would be strange for me to all of a sudden start cooking chicken feet. I don't eat them. So why am I doing it? Am I doing it to appease people to try and fill a void that I think that people um, want? Then I'm, I stop being authentically me. So just because I'm Zulu, I should tick all these boxes. That's not what life is. That's not what food is. That's not what reality is. And that's not my truth. And all I can do is cook the food that connects with me and cook it as authentically as, as I know how. That is imperative. That's a very important part of this work. Um, but yeah, it's not, a, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy space to navigate or figure out what's the right way to do these things. It really is going to take, I guess, a few more generations. I think that uh, all of that really demonstrates there's a moment in time, taking us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, which is cresting. And uh, this idea of what comes together as Anthropocene for me has, uh, until our conversation, never been discussed within a cultural context that relates directly to African indigeneity. There's so much that needs to be changed and so much perspective. And in South Africa, it's been literally bred into us that it's about race. And even though we are you know, aware that maybe it's not just about race, it's really a systemic thing, et cetera, et cetera, it's not that clear cut. The most important thing for me is to be authentically myself um, so that... I'm, I, my entire point is to just is to tell my story my way through through food, basically is like the and also and, and share knowledge in that in that way. But yeah, gosh, yeah, I'm, my books of yeah, authentically me and the type of food that I eat, the type of food that I grew up eating. My stories are my stories, authentic to me, authentically black like me. <laughs> so rounding that out, what? is some ingredient or food that you enjoy most that connects you with home? Oh, um, okay. So I, I don't even you could call it the same ingredient because I guess it's one's a dried form of the other. But it, it has to be umbila. So umbila is basically corn, mealies, but not the yellow ones, not sweet corn. It's like those white kernel mealies. My, grand, my grandparents used to grow it. My, actually, both sides of the family used to grow it um, and then dry it and then mill it. So mealy meal is something that's really prevalent in my food. And I love, I always shout about mealy meal and I love pup and I love, you know, doing different things with it. So I think umbila is something that I love and it connects to me. It's like absolutely delicious. And actually, it's, it's becoming something slowly becoming trendy now. Do bees pollinate that type of mealy? I mean, it, it flowers, but not like as a traditional flower. Yeah, it's a, it's a perennial, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, surely bees pollinate umbila, right? It flowers. Chatting with both Zola and Zeon made me really appreciate the time that I've spent in South Africa. And considering how food and the landscape connects us all as Africans within a diaspora, 
I was reminded again about the clever networking and mutual support and collaboration of the Cape honeybee. And then, of course, of something that Maya Angelou once said. She said, Open your eyes to the beauty around you. Open your mind to the wonders of life. Open your heart to those who love you. And always be true to yourself. For more information about Zola Nene, celebrity chef and author, or Zayon Khan and Ancient Futures, please check our Instagram feed. Be there, do that. And thanks for listening. Come catch a buzz with me again soon. This episode was supported by the American Corner in Cape Town with sound designed by Origin Audio and brought to you by Lidaflora African Botanicals and Sourcing. You can find us at lidaflora.com. What can we find for you? Catch us bi-monthly on your favorite pod feeds. I'm Yolanda Busby and you're listening to Be There, Do That. <laughs>